would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. We are continuing on in our study of this book. We are in chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at the whole chapter today. Revelation chapter 17. Listen as I begin reading to you in Revelation 17 verse 1. John speaking of the vision that he received tells us in verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, that was and is not. It is an eighth, it is an eighth but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. They are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you each time that we read your word on Sunday morning before we seek to understand it and we ask for your spirit to be at work. 
For we know that your spirit must help us to understand, and we particularly feel that today with this challenging passage. So we pray, would you please be at work through the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Help us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Help us to understand what it means to live as an exile here in this place. Help us to see your gospel of grace and be motivated and strengthened in our faith today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of us that enjoy sports, we're getting ready to enter into a really fun season of the year. Uh, Next week, we'll begin uh, March Madness, uh, the NCAA basketball tournament. And uh, we're already in spring training for baseball, and pretty soon there'll be opening day for uh, the baseball season. Uh, in May, we'll have the Indianapolis 500 taking place with the, the, the race taking place in Indianapolis, Indiana. And next month will be one of the biggest golf tournaments that there is, the Masters in Augusta, Georgia. It's not just one of the biggest well-known golf tournaments. It's actually one of the biggest sporting events that takes place during the year. And this year, uh, 2020, will mark the fourth anniversary of what was one of the greatest failures by a golfer in the last round of the Masters. It was 2016. A young phenom named Jordan Spieth was leading going into the last round of the Masters. Now he's kind of a household name in the golf world, but back then he was only 22 years old, coming on to the scene, And he was leading, going into the final round of the Masters by five shots. Everybody agreed it was his tournament to lose. He came to the 12th hole. And if you know anything about Augusta National Golf uh, Club, you know that the 12th hole is not only one of the most beautiful and best known holes in all of golf, it's also one of the most difficult holes in golf. It's just a par three, which means if you're not into golf, you're supposed to hit your first shot onto the green somewhere near the hole. Jordan Spieth stood up on the tee box to hit his first shot. His first shot went into the water. He got to get another ball and drop it in a place that's a little closer to the green and he hit his second shot. He chunked it, and the second shot went into the water too. He got another ball and then went to the drop zone and put it down. His third shot went over the green and into a sand bunker. And it took him two more shots to get it up onto the green and into the hole. Now all total, with all those shots plus the penalties, he ended up with a quadruple bogey. For those not in... Golf terminology, that means he got a seven on a hole that he was supposed to get a three. And he ended up losing the Masters, tying for second place. Now, if by chance you actually were watching that when it happened, and you had your TV or your computer device turned up, then what you would have heard was something very interesting, because everybody was in shock. They were watching this young man just unravel in front of them. The, the gallery, the, the announcers, the other golfers were just gasping at how bad the whole situation was. Everybody was feeling really bad for Jordan Spieth. But if you were watching and you were able to listen, you would have heard as they were walking off the green, after the debacle that had happened on the 12th tee, the caddy 
for Jordan Spieth, Michael Geller, Greller, leaned over and it was caught on camera. He said, it's only golf. Later, after the golf match, the caddy actually posted his thoughts about what had happened. And this is what he said. Don't feel sorry or sad for us. We will not get stuck in this moment, nor should you. At the end of the day, golf is a sport. I'm especially grateful to have an unconditionally loving wife, Ellie, family, and friends who treat us exactly the same regardless of wins or losses. This is not life and death stuff. There are far greater struggles that exist in the world than not winning the Masters. He was making it clear to everybody, and especially to Jordan Spieth, that it is entirely possible to lose, even in a fantastical fashion, the Masters Golf Tournament and yet not be a failure. I wonder how we as God's people would live if we knew with absolute certainty that in God's perspective we can never be a failure in the Christian life. That is what Revelation 17 is bringing to our minds today. We're in a section of Revelation where we see this stark, a number of stark contrasts that are being shown between the followers of Jesus and the followers of the beast or of Satan. The contrast between those who are of the city of the heavenly Jerusalem and those who are of the city of Babylon. Between those who belong to the bride of the Lamb, Jesus, and those who belong to the prostitute. It even reminds us of what we talked about earlier in our service in Psalm 1. The contrast that we saw there between the man of God and the man of the world, the man of wickedness. And we live now here in this place in that tension, in that pull. We feel it. We live between the two advents, between Jesus' first coming and his second And until he comes again and evil is finally defeated, we will live in the midst of this contrast. So until then, God has given his people this letter, the book of Revelation, to read it and to understand it. So that we'll know what the end of the story is. That God is in control and that Jesus wins. And that if we are in Christ, if we are God's people, that we win with Jesus. That it's impossible for us to be a failure in God's sight. Will we fail? Yes. Are we failures? No. How then should we live in response? In light of the reality that the end is certain and sure and that we cannot be failures in God's sight, how does that impact our fears, our doubts, our lack of hope? How does that fill us with strength that we might fight and lean against our sin and pursue righteousness? That's what we're going to look at today in Revelation 17. Now, it's been said, Perhaps you even felt this as we were reading it just a few moments ago, that Revelation 17 is one of the most confusing chapters in the entire book of Revelation, perhaps even in the Bible itself. But let's remember, as we've talked and reminded ourselves about often, the book of Revelation is not meant to be confusing. It's meant to be read and understood. It's meant to be read like a child's storybook rather than some kind of complex jigsaw puzzle. 
So today, let's look at three things from Revelation 17. Let's look at who the prostitute and the beast are. Let's look at what happens to them. And then let's ask ourselves, how should we then live? So first of all, who are the prostitute and the beast? And I should say that I'm going to go pretty quickly through these first two points about who the prostitute and the beast are and what happens to them. Uh, these are things that we've been talking about actually for several weeks. We've seen uh, these things unfolded for us in the previous chapters. We've talked about who the prostitute is and the beast and what happens to them. But because it's in our text today, I do want to cover it. But I'm going to go fairly quickly. And you can go back later today and look at some more of the details. But first of all... Who is this prostitute? Well, how is she described? Well, look right at the beginning of verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. That's the first thing we're given as a description of her, that she's seated on many waters. And now what does that mean? Well, here's an easy one because we don't have to wonder. In verse 15, we're actually told what it means. Verse 15 says that the many waters that she's sitting on represent all kinds of multitudes of people and kings and cultures. And she's sitting on them representing the fact that she controls them. And what does she do to them? Well, we see that back in verse 2. We see that she's seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual morality with the wine of whose sexual morality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. The first description that we have of her is that she is powerful and that she uses her power to lead many people and nations and kings away from the one true God into sexual immorality. We read in verse 4 that she's clothed in purple and scarlet. She's wearing gold and jewels and pearls. She's being described to us uh, as the, the prostitutes in the first century were dressed. With clothing and jewelry made to, to make them look royal and important. And, and notice here, one of the things that she's wearing is scarlet. That's meant to grab your imaginations and attentions and take you back a few chapters. Where we read about the red dragon. And so here we're seeing that she's connected with the dragon, Satan himself. We read at the end of verse 4 that she's holding something in her hand. It's a golden cup. On the outside, it looks valuable. It's of great worth. It seems to be important. But on the inside, what we read is that it's full of abomination and impurities. It's beautiful. It's alluring. It's attractive on the outside. And yet inside, it's full of poison and vileness. Verse 5 tells us that she was wearing a headband. In the first century, many of the temple prostitutes would wear a headband and it would have their name on it so that uh, men seeking them out would call them by name. And here we're told that this prostitute has a name across her forehead. Her name is Babylon the Great. She is the mother of prostitutes. And then we're told in verse 6, one more description of her. She is... Drunk with the blood of the saints, with God's people. It's really kind of a graphic image if you think about it. Having been responsible for the deaths of Christians martyred, martyring God's people, she's drunk with their blood. This, this is how she's described, but who is she? Well, we've talked in previous weeks about... This word Babylon that shows up in Revelation often is used actually throughout the Bible. And it's used to describe people and places and powers who are in opposition to God, who are opposed to God. 
And we've seen in very specific places uh, the, the word Babylon to mean those who are going against God. We, we talked about the Tower of Babel in Genesis. How... Uh, the people of the world sought to build a tower that they might make their name great, that they might make themselves great, that they might be as great as God, building a tower into the heavens. And we've also looked even at the, the nation of Babylon, the literal nation of Babylon that was used to bring God's people into exile and to bring them pain and uh, persecution. So what we see is that the word Babylon here, this prostitute that is being Described for us here in Revelation 17, whose name is Babylon, is representative of any person, any government, any power, any system that opposes the Lord and actively works against Him. When the first century readers were reading this for the first time, they, they would have thought of the city of Rome and of the Roman Empire. In fact, that's actually how the passage ends in verse 18, where we're told that the woman that they saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. They would have known that what that city was. They would have known that it was the city of Rome, that it was representative of the entire Roman Empire. And we see that in verse 9 as well, where we're told that she's seated on seven mountains. Many know that the city of Rome was known as the city that was built on seven hills. It's clear that the first century readers would have heard this passage and they would have known that John was seeing a vision about Rome, of the Roman Empire persecuting God's people in the first century. But it doesn't just refer to the Roman Empire in the first century. It could be any person, any place, any power, any government, any culture, any system that would tempt and seduce the people of God away from the one true God. And notice that she has an accomplice. The end of verse 3, we're told that she's riding on a beast. This beast that she's riding is supporting her. It's in collusion with her. And we read at the end of verse 3 that it's a scarlet beast. Again, taking our minds back and connecting it with the red dragon. This is some beast that is connected to Satan himself. We read at the end of verse 3 that he's full of blasphemous names. Irreverent, outrageous, slanderous, reproachful names against the one true God and His true name. And then we read at the end of verse 3 and in verses 9 through 14, this description of the beast with seven heads and ten horns. Now this is really where it gets complicated, yes? All of these descriptions, all of these details... They, they seem so specific in what they say to us that we're tempted to think that it's referencing very specific people. And I will tell you, and perhaps you know from your own backgrounds, commentators and pastors throughout church history have gone out of their minds trying to figure out who these kings are. All kinds of different ideas have been put forth from Roman Empire emperors in the first century uh, to people throughout church history and even some that will try to track current day leaders in the world as being references to some of these kings. But there are lots of problems, lots of issues with trying to line up all of the details of these kings. Five that have fallen, one that is, one that is yet to come, ten more kings who are yet to get their power. All kinds of problems trying to match them up in some kind of historical way. Instead, as we've done with so much of, of Revelation, as, as we see so often in Revelation, numbers are symbolic. 
And I think that's what's happening here with these numbers. We don't have to get overly complicated and do uh, exegetical backflips and trying to figure out who these people are. The number seven throughout Revelation is a number that represents completeness. And the number 10 is used over and over in Revelation, not only to talk about completeness, but also to talk about power. And so the picture here of this beast is, is one who has complete power, who represents all of the leaders who are opposed to God throughout church history. World leaders and powers and nations who use their political and economic power against God and against his people. So what is this beast? Well, even as we saw back in chapters 12 and 13, this beast is a tool of the dragon of Satan himself. It is any people, any nation, any power, any corrupt system, any political or religious ideology, any culture throughout church history until Jesus comes back that wars against the Lord and seeks the downfall of God's people. That's who the prostitute is. That is who the beast is. And as we see those descriptions, it seems pretty ominous. It seems perhaps even discouraging, perhaps even fearful. But remember, revelation has been given to us to encourage us, to fill us with hope. And so we need to see what happens to the prostitute and the beast. We see the downfall of the prostitute in verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. And you think, well, wait a minute. I thought that the prostitute and the beast were in collusion together. I thought they were supporting each other. I thought they were working together against the people of God. Of course they were. What this gives us a picture of is that eventually the prostitute and the beast turn against each other. The prostitute will be destroyed by the beast. She'll be made desolate and stripped naked and burned with fire and devoured. It's a picture of Satan and his legions and his followers turning on themselves. The whole system of evil imploding on itself. Sin destroying itself. And we read also about what happens to the beast. In verse 8, actually at the beginning and the end of verse 8, we read that the beast was and is not and is to come. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that the beast was and is not and is to come? Well, it means simply this. The beast representing Satan and his, his evil minions and, and, and tools that are used by Satan to bring downfall to, to God's people. From the garden until the cross. From the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve until the cross when Jesus Christ came. The beast was and was given power and influence and the ability to wreak havoc in the world. But when Jesus came and died on the cross, the beast's power was dispelled. Christ conquered the beast by going into the grave and being raised again on the third day. So he's no longer powerful. He is no longer in control. But we are told... That a day is coming, and I do believe that that's speaking about the time between the advents, even the time that we live now, when the beast will once again be allowed to wreak havoc. But even then, notice what we're told in verse 8. Yes, he was, and that he was not, and he is to come, and he will rise up, but he will go to destruction, we read in verse 8. And at the end of verse 12, we read that his time of power will be short, simply an hour. It's a picture for us of the ultimate and final defeat being certain and sure. There is no doubt about it. 
And we are given verses 14 and 17 to drive this home for us as God's people. Verses 14 and 17 make it abundantly clear and fill us with incredible hope. Yes, they, that is the prostitute and the beast and the followers of the evil one, will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And in verse 17, God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. We get this wonderful picture of the prostitute and the beast and all that they represent being ultimately and finally conquered by the Lamb, by Jesus Christ. He alone is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And God is in control. He is working all things out for His purposes so that His Word will be fulfilled. The defeat of the prostitute and the beast is certain and definite and for sure. So, how should we as God's people then live in response? Well, the first thing I want us to reflect on is that we need to understand that in reality, living now and here, we are exiles. It might be actually helpful for us to look at a letter that God wrote to literal exiles, God's people that were taken into exile by the literal Babylon, the country of Babylon, the nation of Babylon. You turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. As I was preparing and thinking about Revelation 17 this week, one of the commentators took me, took us to Jeremiah 29 and helped us to see this incredible connection about God giving us some instructions about how we're supposed to live in the midst of being exiles in this world. You remember your church history, perhaps, that God's people had been in rebellion against God for generations. And God had told them he was going to punish them. He was going to take them into, uh, in, into, uh, to, away from Israel. They were going to be brought into exile. And in 722, that time period, the nation of Babylon came down with Nebuchadnezzar as their king and took the people of God into exile and took them back to Babylon. Now here's something interesting before we read uh, uh, Jeremiah 29. Here's something interesting to understand. The Babylonians had a strategy. They knew very clearly what they were doing. When they would go and try to conquer a, a nation or a people or a culture... They would very intentionally go and win the battle and then they would bring back specific people. The educators, the wealthy, the artists, the influencers of the culture. And they would bring them into the Babylonian culture and they would say, come, come become Babylonian. Live with us. Learn what it's like to be in this culture. Drink it in. Become part of us. Because they knew that if they could get people to do that within a generation or two, they would forget who they were. They would lose their distinctiveness. Israel, God's people, went into exile in Babylon. But God wrote them a letter to tell them what to do. Listen, I'll read to you Jeremiah 29, the first nine verses. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem. To the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles of whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. In other words, do you see what God's telling them? Don't go into exile in Babylon and don't err on either of the extremes. Don't err on the extreme of going there and just constantly fighting and battling and seeking the destruction of the Babylonians. But also don't go and simply just become assimilated into the community and into the culture and lose your distinctiveness. Instead, go and live like an exile. Go and live like an exile. Now, what did that look like? Well, what did he tell them? Go, go into their culture, build homes, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat from them. Multiply, grow, don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city. And the word welfare is the word shalom. Seek the peace of the Babylonians. Those who are your captors. Those who have killed your family. Those who have killed your friends. Those who have taken you all the way to Babylon. Seek their peace. Pray to the Lord for Babylon. Don't let the false prophets and the false teachers around you deceive you. Stay committed to the Lord. Stay true to His Word. One commentator that I was looking at, thinking about this passage and talking about this idea of being what it meant to be exiled, says, don't live as a terrorist or as a tourist. Now you might think, well... Okay, that's what God told Israel to do in the Old Testament in that very particular historical context. But how does that relate to me today? Well, when we come to the New Testament, we read James's letter and we read Peter's first letter. And when, he op- when they opened those letters, do you know who they wrote to? They wrote to the exiles. They still were thinking of God's people as being exiles here in this land. And in Acts chapter 2 where we get a scene of what it looked like in the early church to live out their faith in the midst of an, a non-Christian surrounding, listen to what it says in Acts chapter 2 about how they did that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came on every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It sounds an awful lot like Jeremiah chapter 29. God's people now, God's people then, are exiles in this world, and this is how we're supposed to lead, how we're supposed to live. We uh, uh, archaeologists have recovered a, uh, an early Christian letter. It's not biblical, but uh, extra biblical letter that was written in around 130 A.D. It's called the Letter to Diognetus. We don't know anything about who it was to or who it was from, but it's a letter defending the Christian faith. And in the midst of that letter, uh, it says this. Christian, it's, it's describing what Christians were like in the second century. Christians share their table with all, but not their beds with all. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are short of everything, and yet have plenty of all things. You see, the description of these second century believers is that they were living counterculturally in the world. They were living as exiles. They were living opposite of what the world thought as a standard. The world says, share your bed freely, but be tight with your money and hospitality. But the Christians, the Christian faith said, Christians are to be tight with their sexuality, following the biblical sexual norm, but be radically generous with your time and your treasures and your talents. And isn't that what we read in, in Acts chapter 2? So what does that look like for us? The first thing is we have to know, we have to know in our heads that we are exiles here and now. It's definitely easier to see that and to feel that, I would say, in the last 10 to 20 years here in the United States. It definitely seems that our society, our culture, is becoming more and more anti-biblical. But in reality, it's always been that way. Yes, our country perhaps was more sympathetic to biblical norms in the past, but it's never been a fully theocratic nation. And what we look as we look around is we see everything pointing to this country and the world itself becoming more and more hostile to biblical Christianity. And if the Lord tarries, if he doesn't return, the next 10 to 20 years are going to become even harder for Christians as we deal with more persecution. In other words, what we need to remind ourselves on a regular basis is this is not our home. If your candidate wins in November, this is still not your home. If you get your name published in a prestigious medical journal and people all over the world know your name, this is still not your home. If you have a wonderful marriage, this is still not your home. If you're in baby step seven... And have retirement accounts that are full. This is still not your home. If you are cured of physical and mental trials. This is not your home. Our home is coming. We're going to be seeing it in the coming weeks in Revelations 20 and 21 and 22. With the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. That's our home. And until that time, we are exiles here. And so what does that mean in terms of how we are to live out? We don't not only need to know that that's true, we need to live it out. We ought not to live as terrorists in this culture, only fighting and causing destruction and chaos and trying to destroy and burn everything down around us. 
But we also ought not to live as tourists, simply soaking all the culture up, pretending that we belong and becoming completely assimilated. In other words, we are to live here where God has put us. We are to participate fully in life, engage, serve in our various vocations, seek the peace of the place where God has put us. Or in other words, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. In other words, we don't compromise our beliefs. We remain faithful to the Lord. We don't listen to the false teachers and the false prophets around us. We abide in God and we believe His Word. We work and serve in the kingdom. We gather together regularly to worship and to be fed. We teach the next generation God's Word in our homes and around our dinner tables and here in our church. That's what it looks like. But if you're with me, then you recognize that there's a problem because that seems awfully hard to do. We recognize that we can't do it on our own. And so, the other thing that we need to do as we live as exiles here in this place is to believe the gospel of grace and be filled with a a humble confidence. Did you notice in verse 14? Look back in verse 14. We have this wonderful proclamation, this wonderful declaration of what is true, that although the prostitute and the beast and their followers are going to war against the Lamb, the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And notice what it says there. Those who follow Him. Who is that? It's you. It's me. It's God's people. How are they described? They're called. They're chosen. They're faithful. That's you. That's all of God's people. God has... If you, are, if you are a Christian, if you are one of God's people, then God has known your name from before the foundation of the world. He has called you. He has called you His very own. He has treasured you as His very possession. He has set His love on you from before the foundation of the world. And He has said, you are mine. He's called you. He's chosen you. We're to be faithful, meaning that we're having, we have a faith. Our faith is not in ourself. It's not in our ability to do the right things. It's not in our family background. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe the grace of the gospel and we believe in the work on the cross that Jesus accomplished and finished. So if you're in Christ this morning, you have been elected before the foundation of the world. You've been called into the family of God. You have been regenerated. Your heart has been regenerated. You've been given faith and the ability to to exercise repentance. You have been justified. You have been adopted. We are being sanctified. And one day we will understand fully what it means to be glorified. And what that means is that if you're in Christ this morning, you are not a failure in God's sight. And you can never be. The more that we get that deeply into our hearts and our minds, the better that we will be able to live as exiles in the midst of the trials and the suffering and the persecution of this life. It will enable us to live with humble confidence. One last thing. It means that we believe the gospel of grace that tells us that we are called and chosen and faithful. But it also means that we believe what verse 17 tells us. And it couldn't be more clear God is the one that is in control. Even when Satan and his evil legions seek to do us woe, God is at work using even that for our good and for Satan's ultimate destruction. And you might have felt a little bit uneasy when the description at the end of verse 14 says that you're faithful, because what if you're not? 
But we come back to what this says. God's the one that's in control. And we remind ourselves of how we end our service often with a benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you have to do it all on your own. No, that's not what it says. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God is sovereign. He is in control and He is at work and He wins. And because we are in Christ, we win with Him. We can never be an ultimate failure in God's sight. And the more that that gets into our hearts and our minds, that we will live with a humble confidence as exiles in this place. But remember that this is not our home. We'll remain faithful to the Lord because He will enable us. He will keep us faithful. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We do recognize, we confess, we are honest about the fact that there are places of your word that are hard to understand, and this is certainly one of them. But I pray, if nothing else, Father, that you would help us to see this big picture of what Revelation 17 paints for us, and that you would fill us with all hope as we rest in the gospel the, the truth that you have called us and chosen us and that you will keep us faithful and that we would rest in the truth that you are in control. And Father, as we wait for Jesus to come back, that you would use those truths to empower us to live as exiles here in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 26, we read instructions about the Lord's Supper. Jesus and the disciples gathered together before Jesus went to the cross. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after, he, after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day. When I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We're living as exiles here in this place until Jesus comes again. And God gives us a wonderful blessing, a means of grace. He gives us the church to come together regularly to, to get his means of grace, his word and the Lord's Supper. And he uses these tools to help feed us and to nourish us and to get us ready so that we can go out and be empowered to live as his people, as his exiles. The Lord's Supper is one of those means of grace. We come together and we commune with the Lord Jesus, with our Savior. He is really but spiritually present here with us. We eat and we drink in fellowship with Jesus himself. We're not only remembering the gospel, certainly we're doing that as we see the bread and the cup and we're reminded of his body and his blood that were given for us. But we also know that as we come in faith, believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit will be at work feeding us and nourishing us, strengthening us so that as we go out, we can be his people and we can live as exiles as he calls us to be. This table is a means of grace. It's a way that God reminds us of his grace. It's a way that God feeds us with his grace spiritually. And so it's a table for those who are in Christ, who have made a public profession of their faith, who are believing in Jesus and have declared that publicly. Uh, so if that's you, if you've, if you've named the name of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're trusting in him, if you've publicly professed that here at our church, or another church that believes that the Bible is God's word and that the gospel is by grace alone, in Christ alone, then as the elements come around, eat, drink,
be reminded of these glorious truths of the gospel and our redemption in Christ. And know that as we eat and drink in faith, the Holy Spirit will be at work in strengthening us. So before we eat, let's pause for just a moment and ask the Lord to bless this table. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for giving it to us. We know we don't deserve it. You're so kind and gracious and merciful. You are much beyond what we can even imagine in your grace and mercy. And yet you give us this very tangible uh, way of being reminded of the truth of the gospel and being strengthened. And so we thank you for it. We thank you for giving it to us. We pray that you would be at work through it, through your Holy Spirit. Help us, Father. Help us to believe the gospel in deepening ways. But also, Father, would you strengthen our faith, even in, especially for all of us when we feel weak. So we may go out and live for you this week ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.